Hello, and welcome to Rock, Paper, Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. And my name is Stephen A. Mackay. We are both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV and games. Oh, and we also talk about rock music from time to time. names in the historical fiction space that most people instantly recognize. One of them is Bernard Cornwell, who we interviewed a few weeks ago. And of our guest today, Bernard said in his endorsement of his debut novel, Under the Eagle, I really don't need this kind of competition. Since then, Simon Scarrow has become a household name and published more than 50 books, I think, but um, I'm struggling to, to count them all. Um, you can tell us the exact number if you if you know. Um, Simon's longest running series is Eagles of the Empire, epic Roman historical fiction featuring Macro and Cato, now up to 21 books. He's also written novels about Wellington and Napoleon, thrillers set in the Second World War, many historical action and adventures with co-author TJ Andrews, and some standalone novels set in different eras from the 16th to the 20th century. Welcome to Rock, Paper, Swords, Simon. Hi. Hello, Simon. Hi. It's actually 37 novels. Um, but, uh... 37 novels. And um, I, I guess I was counting all the um, the T.G. Andrews stuff oh, no, as well. No, no, no. Does that, that include them as well? It's a grand it? total, yeah, including the young okay. adult edition too. So. All right. I don't know where I got the number from there. Maybe I just so can't Maybe German but... editions or something that you've just counted <laughs> up. Yeah, no, it's called, you know, fiction writing is, you know, there's a reason why it's called fiction writing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well... Congratulations on the 21st um, novel of the Eagles of the Empire series, Death to the Emperor. Um, could you tell us a bit about about that book, which I believe is your latest book? It's just come out recently, right? Yeah, yeah, it's out uh, last month. Um, and yeah, this is, this is one I've been waiting to write for a number of years, actually, because it's set in this neck of the woods. Um, well, I say this, well, yes. Right, well, around Norfolk, East Anglia. So, um, it, uh, yeah, it's about the Budokan Revolt and um, something I've been building up. And you'll know this as a series writer yourself. You kind of seed the future novels with characters and possibilities. And then when it, uh, uh, they eventually get around to writing that book, it looks like you've been awfully clever. So um, Boudicca was there in the second book and then she's been in a few other books. And, of course, now we're at the, the point of the Budokan Revolt. So... Um, it's also something, I, because I suppose I've been waiting so long to, to write it, I got a bit carried away. Um, and it's about 15,000 words longer than normal, uh, just because, you know, there's just so much material. And we're only up to the the sacking of Colchester. The grand finale is yet to come. So that'll be uh, right. the next book. So um, how long, so incidentally, I mean, how long is a normal Simon Scarra novel? Um, well, it, it tends to be about 130,000 words uh, to 132,000 in the first draft. And then um, by the time the editor's taken her scalpel to it and I've relented, 
Um, it's down to about 124 or so. Um, it used to be you know, a much longer process, but I think after a while, you kind of second guess what the editor's going to say. Um, and then you, you know, she's kind of like perched on your shoulder, you know, that kind of good little angel thing and, and the bad little verbose person there. And um, you eventually get to the, uh, the stage where you can sort of second guess pretty much um, how she's going to react and save yourself a bit of time writing the first draft. <laughs> um, but this time around, I, I made two mistakes. I got carried away. And then the second one was I, I for some reason, I was typing in 10 point. And um, of course, you know, that's less pages. I said, well, I'm not getting very, anywhere very fast. And then I kind of realized why. <laughs> oh, so that shows that you uh, you must um, write in, well, I'm, it could be different programs, but I'm guessing you write in Word then, do you? Yeah, I mean, I, I used to write in Word. Um, I had a, a 2007 version of it, which uh, I really, really liked. You know, it didn't have too many bells and whistles on and allowed you to get on with the job. And then um, it turns out that Microsoft doesn't do uh, backwards compatibility with its Word files. So uh, I had to get one of these, um, you know, that new thing. What is it? 365. Yeah, Office uh, 365, I think. Yeah. yeah, so now I have to, you know, it really makes, you know, really hurts. You have to pay for it every year. <laughs> yeah, second point that one. Yeah, yeah. well, I, yeah, I stopped um, stopped using, I mean, I have to use Word a bit because in the editing mm. phase, the, all the, the editors and the, still use it. So they want it. But I use Scrivener to write. I was going to ask, because um, I've got that on the machine now, because I'm writing um, a musical at the moment. Ooh. And I'm trying to find some good software. And somebody, oh, try Scrivener. You can do everything with Scrivener. So how are you getting on with it? Well, I I wrote, so my first novel, I wrote 26,000 words in um, in Word. Hmm. And then I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's awful. I hate this bit of software. And bearing in mind, at the time I was working in IT as a technical writer. So we had to use Word sometimes, but we were using other tools you know, to do the writing. And I just thought, there must be something better out here that will serve my um, needs. So I went out and did a bit of research and found Scrivener, which I much preferred. And I've never looked back. So ever since then, so that was, what, eight years ago or something. And I've been using Scrivener ever since. Um, it's just, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, there's mm. a there's a lot. We could probably have a whole episode just talking about Scrivener. Maybe probably we should. should yeah. Maybe we should have an episode talking about different. You know, get an, an expert in of Scrivener or something and talk about it. But um, yeah, without going into too much detail, it's it's it, it you you know you break down everything into separate little files. So each chapter is a file. Each scene within the chapter is a file. So it becomes much easier to move things around, and you can put, put your research in as well. Have it all within the same big sort of overarching file structure. So you can search for things very easily, and you can reorder things, and and you yeah. don't get you don't. It's not what you see is what you get. So what you're writing is just text, and at the end you decide how to output it, and you can output to any format, including Word, ah. and say break it up into these structures and put chapter headings and you know whatever you can decide you know what the metadata is, and then it doesn't take too long to get used to it. Or... Well, it didn't. It didn't to me, but I mean, I'm probably only using about ten, fifteen percent of what it can do. But I it think sounds very most of these things. You don't need, you don't need to yeah. use most of it. I think people get hung up on trying to learn everything yeah. of a bit of software. It's like when you get yeah. Photoshop or something, you look at it and you think this has got like a million things you could do, but then you, you only use I don't know, ten different commands to do most of the things that you want to do. And it's the same, I think, with 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 these bits of software. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to give that one a go. I mean, I've got it as I said. It's just that, yeah. Um, I started. You know, it's one of these. I'm really really lazy. You know, so I started work on it. I thought, oh. I'm going to have to work hard at understanding this. So back yeah. to word I go. 
Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to. I think it's got a bit of a learning curve. I think I I would imagine that if you sort of dedicate a couple of days to it, sort of looking at you know watching a few YouTube videos and a few tutorials, I reckon that you know if you can sort of get to understand the way it works, then then that, then after that, it's plain sailing really. Okay. And yeah. I only well, ever have any issues at certain stages in the phase of writing. You know, when you finish the novel and you then got to output the whole novel into Word or something, at that point, you know, you might have a, a few hiccups as you're sort of learning that phase. But the actual writing itself is in, incredibly easy. And then once you yeah. learn how to do the outputting, sort of. But it, it's it's there's a lot of information out there now. It's very popular, so you you find lots of videos and things. Yeah, I think I'll I'll save that for my next uh, in between books moment. <laughs> yes, those moments when you think, oh, now I've got loads of time, and then a week later you're writing the next book. Well, it's the thing, you know. I thought I'm coming back here for a bit of a break and Christmas and stuff, and then you just discover you've got a sort of five foot high, you know, mail has built up, and then there's all the other things, you know, all the people, relatives you have to go mm-hmm. and see, and uh, oh, and it's Christmas. And know, it's Christmas, so, yeah. yeah. Isn't. Yeah, well, yeah, I know it's 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 you know, and it's always that thing that the problem is not buying for other people. It's when they say, "What do you want?" and you think, "Well, actually, you know, I'll tell you something, you know, not a lot," because having moved out to Mauritius and living out of a, a suitcase for two for about three or four months before the the first batch of books turned up, um, so we just had a laptop, um, about four or five books, you know, pens, paper, that sort of thing, and a change of clothes, and that's all I had for about. Um, I say four months didn't miss a bloody thing (laughs) amazing right it's amazing so now I come back here and I look around and I'm just kind of like horrified at the the level of clutter Um, and I've really got to you know do something about it because it's driving me nuts you know having discovered that you can get by without stuff you just suddenly give it away (laughs) willy-nilly so are you basically living like Jack Reacher then? How huh? you have been living like Jack Reacher for the last sort of few months, where he just buys like one set of clothes and then wears them for a couple of days, then chucks them out and buys another set. Well, when they become so bloodstained, he ends yes, up. well, yeah. Once yeah. you once you've strangled a few people, or headbutted a few people to death, then you've got to throw the clothes away. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. Oh well, I wish, I wish, but uh, <laughs> it's just um, you know, it, it's a it's a real eye opener to be honest, and um, uh, I'm. I'm, I'm kind of humbled by it because i'm just thinking this is just ridiculous so this this year I'm, i've kind of really cut down on um any kind of one present requests because apart from anything i've got to get it you know back to uh, mauritius in the, mm. in the suitcase and uh, there is an allowance and when you yeah. start um well yeah sorry i'll just show you well no there's the pile of things to go whoops back down there <laughs> all right so, oh that's a full suitcase yeah. in itself yeah, I know, I know. So we're allowed two suitcases, um, and then uh, there's the carry-on bag, which of course is you know where all the laptops are going to go. So, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's a great place to live, so I'm, I'm not complaining. Well, one of the questions yeah. we had you know, planned was to ask you about the move to Mauritius and how you're getting yeah. on there. And um, obviously, it sounds like you're getting on very well. How have you found the writing process there? Well, the writing is actually a lot easier because um, you know I'm not glued to you know watching the news and and you know, we're finding out which day of the week by which prime minister we've got, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's it's been a, a real liberation getting away from Brexit, the, you know, the travails of the Conservative government and, the, you know, each successive scandal that comes out and all that. And it does, you know, preoccupy you because you're Absolutely, just thinking, yeah. it's like the, the worst ever sitcom shit show, you know, that you're ever going to see. Um, and the joke of it, of course, is, you know, we're the butt of the joke. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, 
being as far away from that as possible and Brexit is very, very helpful. Um, and, you know, it's, I've been able to write actually a lot more than than, than was the case in, in the UK. So, um, you know, I'm very pleased about that. That's and also, interesting. You know, writing a musical now, so uh, that would never have happened if I hadn't gone out there. It's not about the Romans, is it? Sadly not, no. no. Um, but one of the reasons we moved out there is so... Um, uh, you know, we went out four years ago on a holiday and at the airport, somebody came up to my wife and said, uh, Louise, Louise, Louise. Um, and she turned around and said, Michelle. And I thought, well, what the hell? You know, <laughs> bloody Russian airport. Who the hell is this? Um, and it was somebody she'd sung in a band with 20 uh, odd years ago when she was living in Geneva. And uh, they've retired to to Mauritius. So um, we stayed in touch and that's that's how we kind of you know, decided to go there. And it turns out this is um, a uh, a band with a, a rather serious kind of historical significance in a way. They're the first band to have a pop video on the internet and the first band to have, well, it was the first image on the internet was a picture of this band. Oh, wow. And that's because the guy who's run, uh, who set the band up was working at CERN. And okay. um, Tim Berners-Lee was next door, busy cobbling together the internet. And he came through one day. He said, look, I've just, you know, I just need a video and an image just to test this thing out on the, what do you got? And Silvano said, here, well, have this image, have this uh, this video. So they went up on the internet. So they were the first things, graphics on the internet. Oh, wow. That's so every 10 years, you know, the newspapers pile in and interview this group and mm. uh, sort of say, you know, ah, you know, it's you made history, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, um, I thought, oh, what a great topic for a, a, a musical because they've got, this huge catalogue of songs that they've put together and, and they're really fun because they're all about physics. <laughs> Is it pop music? Or yeah, pop yeah, it's, or, it's yeah. kind of sort of 60s. Right. Um, yeah, but very, very sort of catchy um, stuff. And the band's called uh, Les Horribles Sonnettes, so it's LHC. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's constantly singing about, you know, somebody's bewailing the fact that their boyfriend's always in the lab and doesn't care for them, um, <laughs> you know, things like this, and uh, microwave love and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, Sounds for, so, so you, are you writing like a, a kind of Mamma Mia-style musical with the music of the band? I wish. Or? If if, uh, if it's Mamma Mia, then my share of two billion looks good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be good. Well, yeah. we'll... We'll keep. keep is it the first musical? Yeah. yeah, is it the first musical you've you've written? Yeah, yeah. Well, this this is why I'm I'm trying to find. Uh, I've got the format sorted out now and started writing the story and stuff. So we're just sort of putting it together. Um, and I've got the back catalogue of songs. And of course, you're going through the lyrics and you're trying to work out which lyrics work best with which part of the story. Yeah. Um, and then some of the lyrics are just like killingly funny as well. So uh, you know, I've got to find a, a, a way of kind of putting that into a performance. So um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It um, sounds like a real um, bit of a bit of a departure from what you've done up till now. So that's well, never a bad thing, though. No, I think this is you know this is always the thing about writing is that, um, and you, you'll know this that you start doing a bit of research, start talking to people, and then you get another idea, and then you do something else, and you get another idea, and then you get the stack of ideas that you know you're going to be only about a quarter of the way through when you peg out. Yeah, and, that, and that's the reality of it. You know, it's just a, an addiction telling stories, really. So how how did you get started then, Simon? What inspired you to write books about the Romans? Um, well, about the you know story writing actually started when I was at school because my parents are you know those those cool brutal uh, you know callous middle class types who sort of send kids away to boarding school whilst they right. they go off and you know travel around the world and have fun, um, which of course didn't 
go down terribly well with me when I used to get these postcards from Hawaii or whatever it was when I was middle of November in the common room sort of freezing my arse off. So anyway, um, when the uh, uh, lights went out in the dormitory, we all took turns telling stories. And um, I got to me one night and I, and I was getting a bit tired and I, and I thought, and we shall continue tomorrow. Um, leave them on a cliffhanger. And so I continued the story the next day. And then after a while, I got the job full time. Um, and you begin to work out when the stories are working well, because everybody's silent and there's kind of stillness. Right. And you know when things are going slightly awry, when there's a bit of chatter and all the rest of it. And then you begin to develop the very, very basic storytelling skills of you know building something up and then leaving them on a cliffhanger, then coming back the next day and continuing the story and, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I had that all, all, all sort of pretty much mapped out pretty quickly. And then um, when I went to, uh, left that school, um, and went to another school where the, we had this absolutely cracking Latin teacher. Um, and I was really crap at the subject. I mean, you know, um, the, the Latin O-level, as it was in the day, um, was a fairly straightforward and easy thing to get through. You just had to memorise Tacitus. It, you know, wasn't, wasn't any great shakes. Um, so I wasn't very good at Latin. But when he started to stop talking about Latin, started talking about the history, and then you're just thinking, wow, all this really cool and great stuff. Um, yeah, why don't they teach you that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they do, they do. I mean, it's there on the kind of curriculum, but, you know, very much as a you know an aside, they really want you to go do all that sort of Life of Brian, you know, Roman Arnais, Ites, Domus stuff. Um, so that, that's kind of where they, they, they steer you. And, and, of course, going on holiday around Europe, you know, you just keep coming across one Roman remain after yeah. another, you know. And um, a combination of that, I think, got me really excited about Rome. And then, of course, you had, um, you know, being slightly older than you guys, uh, we had I, Claudius on television uh, when I was growing up. And it seemed every Sunday afternoon it was something like Cleopatra or Demetrius and the Gladiators or Spartacus or, you know, and so on, the Hall of the Roman Empire. It seemed to be on all the time for some reason. So that whole sword and sandal thing um, added to the history, added to the, you know, visiting all these sites. So it was always there. And I think I probably actually did most of the research whilst I was at school. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. And then when I you know, thought about writing about Romans, that came a bit late in the day because um, I'd written three novels, none, first three not published. They're, they're in a dusty drawer down there somewhere. Right. And these, um, these will come out after your death. There'll be the, those things that those books that get published by people like t 10 years after they've, they've gone. And no, you, re you not buy if I them. Have my way. And you, <laughs> and you buy them and you read them and you think, okay, so the estate needed some money. I get it. But I understand why they weren't published. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'll, I'll leave them, you know, strict instructions that they're to be left lining hamster cages or something. Um, you know, that's all they're good for, really. But, um, and, and, and it was really because I was, you know, that classic sort of beginner writer mistake of going to the bookshops, looking at what's selling and thinking, yeah, well, I'll do that. You know, right. your heart's yeah. not really in it, but you know, you just want to uh, make that success. And, um, you know, at the same time, I was thinking, you know, what, what do I want to read? And I'd, I've just been introduced to Falco, uh, Lindsay Davis's detective series, which is kind of Raymond Chandler in ancient Rome, and she does it really well. Um, but at the same time, I was thinking, you know, I really want something more military than detective. What is there? And of course, there wasn't anything at the time. It was all sort of emperors and generals and things like that. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'll write this one for me. And I think that's that's the point at which you realise that you know you have to believe in the product. You know, you have to believe in what you're writing. You know, Absolutely. Um, I think was it Robert Frost made that comment about you know no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. 
Uh, yeah. There's yeah. no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And he's done right. You know, and it's definitely true that, you know, it's it's very good advice to write a book that you want to read because you could be sure, pretty much sure, that you're not going to be the only person on the whole planet that wants to read that same sort of st- you know, type yeah. of story. But I think that's a, that's a pretty common mistake amongst people, you know, starting out is that they think, okay, well, what can I do that's that's going to sell a lot, you know, rather yeah, than... just to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. let's not let's not decry that. Oh no, not at all. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, if that's that's just actually, you know, one of the reasons I'm out in Mauritius is to set up a creative writing course at the local university there. And my whole take on it is it's creative writing as a commercial activity, because one of the things I've noticed when I've been along to a lot of the creative writing workshops and courses here is that you know you ask people and th- th- their ambition is to make a living out of it, you know, yeah. and they're quite open about that. You think, well, why isn't that the starting point? You know, why is it all this kind of fine writing, blah, 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 blah? And and then, oh, yes, and you may want to do that, get an agent and publisher and this sort of thing. You know, you should actually start from, okay, I want to make a living out of this. You know, okay, if this is the, the, the thing I want to write, then how am I going to monetize it? What sort of possibilities are there for, you know, creating an income out of yeah. this? And so, you know, you can't set up that kind of course um, here in the UK because, you know the the creative writing uh, mafia, for want of a better word, have you know pretty much nailed down the, the format of the course. And anybody that sort of says, "Well, I'm here to make some money," or you know, "I want to make a living out of it," you know, is going to get looked at down yeah. on a very long nose. Um, yep. I think. So um, the beauty of doing it in Mauritius is there's no creative writing courses there at all. So you know, there's a, a blank, blank slate, and I can kind of set one up that uh, you know thinks about it more as a commercial proposition. Um, along with the writing, so but it's, pretty- it's 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 really interesting. There's a real real split um, of writers and and people in the writing establishment or the you know publishing industry or whatever you want to call it in the UK of of people. Obviously, the publishing industry is there to make money, but mm-hmm. writers. There's a real split of the writers who just think I'm I'm creating art and it's you know if I make money, well you know that's that's well and good, but I'm I want to write the you know the next amazing novel and if I make money out of it, that's brilliant. But then there's the other side of people that you know the probably the middle East writers who are just writing and they want to make a living out of it and they do hopefully you know some of them like us succeed in making yeah, a living out yeah, of it but i think but, half of them probably just don't want to admit it mm, they, they'll say yeah. that they want to create art whereas they really do want to make money but they think they can't admit it yeah yeah well it, it seems some you know i mean this is one of the problems with that kind of course and that kind of attitude is that you know they make it, it sound like a bad thing actually you know yeah. most people sign up these courses that's exactly what they want to do mm. yeah um the danger is that um you know if if you just discourage the you know if you just encourage the the the, the way of doing things at the moment that there is you end up lots and lots of these people who um write books which consist of you know big words small print low sales and then they eventually go on to become lecturers of creative writing and then you just perpetuate this problem and i think um you know I get really pissed off, actually, you know, when people go, oh, yeah, you're, uh, what's that that, that lovely phrase that Ben Kane made into a T-shirt, Jack? Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Just another f***ing Roman author. Yes, yeah. yeah. So was that, so so was that Angus Donald that came up with that, or or, He was was a bit, apparently, so the story goes, I wasn't there the night, but uh, Angus got a bit drunk, and, um, you know, and he was amongst Roman authors, 
and somebody had made some comments. And he sort of said, what do you know? You're just another fucking Roman author. <laughs> so Jaffra was born. Jaffra, and, that's um, it, yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, that, this is the thing. that There is a sort of a, you know, you're just another commercial fiction. Yes, yeah, snobbery. There's the snobbery of, of genre, yeah. genre fiction, as if genre fiction was somehow easy. It's like when people talk about, you know, commercial movies not, you know, not being good or whatever. You think, well, they're making, they're the yeah. ones that are making the, you know, like Avatar, Avatar 2, whatever coming out now, it costs, I don't know how many millions, but it's going to make, you know, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of millions yeah. of because dollars. Because people, people enjoy it. That's what people want to see. Well, this is, this is it. You know, what, what is wrong with enjoying the story? And then I remember yeah. some, some years ago, there was um, a big debate on, uh, uh, I think one of the literary review magazines or something about, you know, should, uh, a writer concentrate on style um, or or story. That was the kind of the big issue, and it was really really interesting how um, and they broke it down so that the vast majority of people who thought that style was important lived in London, you know, mm. which I thought was really quite revealing. And those who are sort of more concerned with story were the sort of provincial types. And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, style's fine. And style is something we can aspire to. And every so often we'll write a paragraph or a, you know, a sentence where we feel very, very pleased. Yeah. And, you, and you read it back and you think, yeah, that's good. You know, but at the same time, if, if that's all it ever was, and sometimes, you know, I've read quite a few of these, because um, I was unfortunately in a, in a men's reading group where um, a couple of the guys there were very much of that school. Well, if it's by a product of the creative writing, you know, UEA, it must be good. And therefore we will read it. And, you know, you, you end up reading, you know, I, I'm not a fan of Ian McYorn. I'm really not. And, you know, when you actually uh, have to go through several of his books and you begin to think, you know, so you've spent the last 20 pages talking about cooking ravioli or 15 pages covering the squash game or, you know, and then you have the most sort of preposterously unbelievable plot. And you're thinking, OK, OK, there is a, a nicely written sentence here once in a while, but, you know, this is just yeah. There's yeah. no story. Yeah, yeah. And, no and, you know, and what and what you're what we're trying to do is you know, I think one of the beauties of um, writing is that we are only half of the equation. You know, we you can be a good or you can be in a good or an indifferent writer. You can be a good or indifferent reader as well. And what I try, you know, I think the game is for me is to try and make it easy for good readers. So that in the sense that you know they take you know we put the black marks down on white paper. That's all we do. What they do is then take those black marks and turn them into magic in their heads, you know. And the beauty of, of reading is that every single novel is going to be read differently by every single reader, you know. Yeah. And you're going to have this, this wonderful kind of, um, you know, double effort between the, you know, the two of us to, to create this kind of magic. And I, I think, you know, that tends to get lost in the mix so that there are good and bad readers as well as good and bad writers. Yeah. And of course, you know, when you go and see a movie, you know, no, no matter how good Avatar is, um, it's going to be the same movie for everybody who watches it. Whereas if Avatar was a book, you know, you, you, yeah. it's a unique experience for everybody. Well, that's why it costs hundreds of millions to make Avatar, because <laughs> you have to do all that to make it unequivocal yeah, so alive. people can see yeah. exactly what you want them to see. And so yeah, know, the but, director you know, can, you know, put on the screen and say, well, I, you know, Cameron um, can can say this is exactly what I want people to see, whereas we can't do that. We can we can impart yeah, but the knowledge. I, I, that we I, want. That's what I I think I I prefer about writing actually, and I prefer about reading, is that um, you know it's so personal. It is yeah. so kind of creative in the way that going to the cinema isn't. You know, cinema yeah. you just it's pretty passive. 
Yeah. You know, and, and you either like the story or you don't. You either analyze it or you don't. You know, you've got very limited kind of options. As a reader, though, once you, you know, you paid the uh, the entrance ticket price, you know, you're you're the one that's kind of creating this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a creative aspect even when you're the reader. Absolutely. And the and the reader can choose to skip bits. You know, lots of people say, Well, I'm bored with that description, so I'll skip and go yeah. to the dialogue or whatever. Yeah. You can choose and to you, do that, which and you can and you can pause, you know, without having yeah. to hit the yeah. pause button, mm -hmm. you know, just to um you know reread a sort of sentence or you mm. know to read it differently or to stop yeah. and think about something or to scribble in the margin. When can you scribble in the margin when you're watching a movie? Yeah, you know, and how often do we do that? I mean, you know, I'm sure you do. I mean, you know, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there with my kind of, not, you know, highlighter or anything like that, but I've got a, a very, very fine point nib so I can get plenty of notes in the margin. And um, if, you know, if it's a sort of nonfiction thing, fine. Sometimes with fiction, though, I'll do it because, you know, if I'm reading something that really bowls me over or I yeah. abhor, you know, I will sort of, I want to know why. Uh, I want to know why it's having that uh, effect on me. So I'll, I'll sort of think it through and, and make the comments in the margin. You know, yeah. which of course also mitigates against buying ebooks, of course. But there we go. Well, you mentioned yeah, about the the Jaffra thing, so I was just curious. How do you feel about the amount of like Roman novels that are out now and the the authors? Because when you got some success, loads of people started doing it. I don't know if they copied you or not, but they certainly followed the same formula. Yeah, I don't think um, you know, and I'm not sure about copying. I think that the thing is, it's it's not so much the you know that it's copying. I think it's the publishers once they actually see that there's a big market, you know, and they sort of think, well, they're you know over at headline, they're doing well with this new sort of scarab guy. So what do we, we need something like that? And then the right. whole thing kind of rolls out along those something. And I'm pretty sure that there, you know, there are you know, it's like anything that um, uh, in a kind of creative. Uh, or business world, you know, you're not necessarily the only one doing something, but the trick is being the first, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that I was lucky. And also, you know, there are things that are outside of your control as well. Um, it was, uh, let me see, it was a month after my first book came out, Gladiator appeared in cinemas, you know. You well, really could plan that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Perfect promotion, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people sort of make it, you know, there's a tendency for some people to think, oh, well, you know, you've done 37 old books, um, you know, that that it was a foregone conclusion and, and they kind of read things retrospectively. You think, no, it's a lottery. What if Gladiator hadn't have been released? Yeah. What if the manuscript had gone to the, you know, an editor whose whose list was full? What if, you know, the agent I'd sent it to on the day who accepted it had got a bad hangover or had read one too many bad Roman books? You know, that, yeah. that's the reality. Or, what, or yeah, or, or if Gladiator had been bad. And so instead yeah. of being like really good publicity, everyone had gone, oh, Romans, you know, the rubbish. Romans, you yeah. know, that movie was terrible and it all you know dropped like a stone. But yeah, yeah. well, I don't think that Britannia television series has done anybody <laughs> no. in Rome. Any favorites, you know. <laughs> no, no. So, uh, there was a Beowulf um, series a, a while back and I managed to watch 20 minutes of one episode <laughs> before I gave up on it. So yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's hard, isn't it? Because, um, you know, when somebody comes out with something that you think you really want to be a success you want you to know. enjoy it yeah <laughs> and, it, and it, you just think oh no i know it's terrible because <laughs> it, it, the build-up of seeing that oh this program's coming out oh that could be yeah. great and then you yeah. you sit down that first night and think oh no what have they done this is just terrible yeah. i had that so, with um it was some drama crime series on the telly called inside man um david tennant and uh tushi okay yeah yeah, yeah. and um it, you know and you think Stephen moffitt okay well it should be okay but it, you know you just 
waiting for it, you know, painfully, because they're two really good actors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite meaty right. roles. But the story is so bad. And you just, just didn't, kind of, didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was kind of cringingly bad. You know, people, you know, it was one of these things where the guy had actually worked out the story and then gone back and made sure all the characters did everything they could to make the plot work rather than sort of acting in, you know, true to their character or anything like this. So it was just, you know, deus ex machina on every page, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that really kind of hurts when you're reading it or seeing it on the screen. Even. Yeah. So I know lots of our listeners are going to be thinking, ask him more, ask him more about Macro and Cato and his historical fiction novels, because we're kind of talking about writing in general and things, which is all really interesting, but I'm just going to take it back um, mm-hmm. to, to a couple of things we've already talked about. So we talked about, you've got 21 novels in the, in the big series, the, um, uh, Eagles of the Empire series. Um, so, how many of them? Because you you talked about you had some of the some of the characters and some of the events are sort of seeded early on, and then you brought them back and you sort of bring things to fruition. You've already mentioned there's going to be another one featuring mm. Boudicca, I think, again. Um, but how many have you got planned in total, and have you or have you got a total plan? I never had a total plan. Um, you know, when we we got the original publishing deal, my agent said, "Oh, you know, um, how many do you think you're going to write?" And I thought, "Well, you know, nine, ten, if I'm lucky." And she said, well, don't count on more than six, you know, because this is how these things tend to work out in the end. Um, And the publisher of Commission 3 in in the first instance. And I said, well, we'll see how it goes if if there's going to be a second deal. So, you know, you you have no idea um, how how well it's going to go. And I hadn't planned it out. And I don't plan things out now. Um, I, I can sort of see that there is a story arc that may... It may be one novel, it might be two or three novels, possibly. But, um, you know, that's as far as it goes. There's no sort of big plan, you know, for the entire series. And then there's no big plan either within each novel. I mean, when I start it, I know who the villain's going to be. I know where it's going to be set. Um, I know what the main problem that they've got to resolve is for the book. That's a half side of A4. And then we write, you know. So, um, and it's because I, you know, I want that, you know, frosting again. I want to, in, you know, live the story as I'm writing it. I don't want to know what's coming next, you know. I yeah, want yeah. the guys to actually work it out for me. And and the beauty of it is, of course, you know, that, that they will, they will do stuff. They will say things. They Unexpected. Will yeah, exactly. Yeah, when yeah. that happens, you just think, well, you know, I'm shocked, and you think <laughs> that's good. That's really good. Yeah. You know, if I if I'm going to surprise, be surprised, then hopefully the reader will. You know, yeah, there's, I've had I've had moments when people have contacted me and said, "You killed so and so, you know, character in a, in a story," and I said, "No, I didn't." I said, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> just I didn't. Kill, I just wrote yeah. it down." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody, no, I didn't kill him. Some guy. Like what him. you know, hey. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yes, yeah, because um, sometimes it just happens, and you're just you know you maybe don't expect a certain character to get killed or or to kill another character, and then suddenly you're in a moment yeah. and think, "Oh, well, you, you you know you you, you as I said about seeding stuff. I I, I remember early in in one of the early books macro you know going on about the you know some bloody marine his mother had run off with um you know when he was young <laughs> and then, yeah and there's about four or five books later um and macro and cato have got to go and do a sort of some sort of thing with the roman navy in the adriatic i guess who he yeah. meets <laughs> yeah well exactly so i didn't i hadn't thought about it even as so yeah. he was on in this there with this column of recruits marching to ravenna under this old um veteran and they, you know, and I didn't think about it, you know, and they were just getting on really, really well. And the guy said, well, look, uh, you know, I'm on the verge of retiring. Um, when we get to Rueda, come down to the bar I own and uh, yeah. meet my squeeze. 
And I thought, oh, uh, you know, okay. So they, anyway, they're in the bar. And then um, and she goes, ah, here she is now. And, I, and as I was typing it, so the macro looked up and said, hello, mum. <laughs> what? <laughs> this, is funny. this is stuck in my head. I remember this very distinctly, yeah. even though I must have read it years ago. Yes. Yeah. Obviously a good scene. Well, it, you know, there's a, obviously there's a big punch up, you know, because yeah, yeah. realise it puts two and two together. <laughs> but, well, but, um, as, but as you said, though, you know, it, it's a shock for you when you were writing it. And it obviously shocked yeah. Stephen when he read it as well. So, I mean, that's the that's the that's magic the best, there, isn't it? That's it, the magic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's where I think, you know, you can't afford to, um, I mean, you, you know, it depends on what you're writing. If, you know, you're doing Wellington and Napoleon, then you've got a very limited yeah, scope yeah. for doing that. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, you, you find out some nice little nuggets where, you know, for example, Napoleon was um, had a, a, a rabbit shoot organised for the, his, the imperial court. And unfortunately, one of his soldiers he put in charge of uh, organising this didn't realise there's a difference between wild rabbits and tame rabbits. And so he'd bought a whole load of tame rabbits and the party and they let the cages open, expecting them all to bolt so they could be shot. And they kind of ambled out. out there. And, yeah, oh, nibbled no. the grass, yeah, and sort of came up and sort of nibbled people's fingers oh, and you no. know, looked at them endearingly. And this well, you couldn't shoot them, could you? Well, it caused a bit of a you know, a, a bit, I, I had it with Napoleon, obviously, absolutely outraged. And he sort of scrambles back into his coach in a, in a foul temper and then freezes because sitting opposite him is a rabbit <laughs> you know, eyeing him curiously. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, yeah, sometimes, I yeah, you know, you you can come across something that's factual, and you you can spin it slightly to yeah. surprise the reader. But um, if you're doing something like Macro and Cato, where the you know the big history is in the background, and you know with Macro and Cato, you know, you can sort of um, they can do that. They can surprise yeah. you. They can do their own thing, and uh, and it's great being an amanuensis really when the, when they're at work. Well, I wanted to ask how you keep track of all these uh, books, the Micro and Cato ones, because I remember picking one up more than once and starting to read it. And then I get quite a few chapters in and I realise that I've already read it. Mm. Because, you know, the covers are quite similar and the titles are quite similar. So how do you keep track of it? Um, I'd love to say I've got a, you know, a very sort of thorough card index and all this. Yeah. Stuff. And the answer is, I, you know, I don't. Um, and you try and keep as much in, in, in your head as possible, but, um, and I really should actually have some sort of, you know, um, database for all this. Yeah, or document or something. Because it can go horribly wrong. Um, yeah. We, we'd got to galley, almost galley proofs, I think, with one of the books where um, my, and I was driving my young, my oldest son to scouts. And he said, so what's the latest one about then? So I said, oh, it's about this guy who's the son of, um, a tele, you know, um, uh, Telemachus is the son of um, this guy in you know this in, in an earlier book. My son looked at me and he said, "No, he's not. That's not his name. His name's Ajax." You know, and I said, Are "You sure? <laughs> Absolutely, Dad. You know, I've read all the books. I know." And having a, a, a younger, slightly more accurate mind, he was right. So we were able to catch that one. You know, but um, but it was really funny. You know, you, you do this thing, yeah. and I'm sure it's this is much a function of age as stupidity. But um, you you have this where well, you remember something very very clearly, and it, and it's a hundred percent wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. False memory. I noticed. I noticed that um, I I've got like lists of Anglo-Saxon names and lists of Visigothic names and Frankish names, whatever, and and. I'll I'll use one in a book, and then the next book, a name will crop up in my. I'll I'll end up using it again, and I'll only find it when I get to like the editing stage. Like, Hang on yeah. a minute, this was 
It's the same name that I gave, you know, a side yeah. character in the I mean, obviously certain names just sound good to me. And I think, well, yeah, there's only so many of them. A great name. But there's like a list, and, and some of them I think, oh, that sounds yeah. rubbish. That sounds rubbish. And this one's good. And I end up using the same bloody name again. Yeah, you, you have to be careful of that. You know, there's, there's only so many times you can put Biggest Diggers in a row. Silius Sodus. Yeah. So you mentioned. Buttocks. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Do you find this weasible? Um, <laughs> So you've, you've said you're writing this musical at the moment. Um, have you got, apart from the music, are you writing a novel as well, or are you one of these people yeah, that well, writes just um, one thing and then finishes that and moves on to the next? Or I, I, No. The thing is, I'm, I'm a guy. You know how it is. We do one thing at a time, and, yeah. and not necessarily well. I really wish I could multitask. So it's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, roughing out this sort of musical stuff now. Then in January, I've got to start the next Macro and Kato book. Okay. Then I've got to do, I'm still, oh yeah, I can work on two things at once if I'm co-writing. So I'll be working on that. And at the same time, I'm working with um, TJ on um, a Karatakis trilogy. So, All right. yeah, so okay. we're doing, you know, the Roman invasion from the other side, which is a lot of fun, actually. Um, I'm particularly enjoying this one because we've got it down as a, a, a Roman historian who's sick of writing these kind of hagiographies of aristocrats. And he comes across Karatakis in exile in Rome and says, well, here's a really good story. Really interesting guy. And then, you know, he, he becomes aware of the fact that Karatakis is telling him the story that Karatakis wants to tell, and that he needs to sort of catch, you know, you know make sure that this is true. Um, and at the same time, he's being pressured by the high ups in Rome, sort of saying, you know, you sure you really want to be writing this story? You know, not really good for your career or your life. You know, so he's having to. So it's very much how does history get written, particularly in difficult political situations. So, um, as well as telling Karatakis' story. So we're having a lot of fun with that. Um, so that's being co-written at the same time as I'll be doing the next Macro and Cato. And then I should catch a break in um, April, I think, where I'll do some more of the musical before I start the next um, German detective novel um, uh, for to finish towards the end of the year. So, yeah, it tends to be about three or four projects. Yeah, there's lots going on. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. So how did your um, collaboration come about with TJ Andrews and how does it work? Well, I'd, I'd co-written a film script with um, my brother um, some years before. And I, and the way it worked seemed to go pretty well. So I wrote the first um, in, in screenplay, you know, 20 minutes or so. Then I'd hand it over to him and he'd edit what I'd done. And then, you know, he'd add the next 20 minutes and then I'd and then oh, we'd flip right. it back and do that. And occasionally we'd sort of meet up and discuss how things were going and, you know, ideas we had. And because we were on the same wavelength, it worked out quite well. So I thought, well, okay, when headlines suggested, you, you know, what about doing a, um, uh, a sort of an ebook series with um, TJ? And uh, I said, okay, we started writing this. And, and originally headline wanted it to go out under my name, you know, no mention of him at all. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, we're not having that really because, and, and I didn't realise that they, they were, because my agent didn't tell me that the cut was sort of 65% me, 35% him. which She said, well, that's really, really good for ghostwriters. A lot of them get less than that. And I thought, well, this, you know, this is no way to proceed. You know, so we we had a little rejig, so it's 50-50, because um, I think that's that's probably fair and it stops any arguments or um, any resentment. Yeah. And yeah. also TJ's name goes on the cover. And, um, you know, and I think that's, that's a big difference because I wondered about that because I was looking and obviously, you know, we said that TJ is 
done ghostwriting for other people um yeah. but but normally and very often ghostwriters don't get a, a mention at all you know on covers well, i think that's so, pretty scandalous yeah that um, seems unfair yeah yeah because so, i know people that have ghostwritten stuff and they they you know they get a, a fee and that's it and it's terrible yeah. you know, because it doesn't help you for your curriculum you know for your resume you don't you can't say really no, openly yeah. you know i wrote no but i mean and, and you know in good it. conscience how can you work under those sort of um yeah, you know, yeah take the credit for somebody else's writing Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, that's a very conservative thing to do. And of course, we don't like that. Sort of <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that that's kind of how that happened. And then, you know, with TJ, it was it, you know, because we we got on, we get on really well. You know, that's always a good plus. Um, and you know, he's a very creative thinker. He's been doing a lot of writing you know, under his own name and under uh, you know, other people's names for a long time. And he's an ex-editor as well. So he knows the score. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's really nice when we have one of our creative uh, meetings where we just sit there and you know you say well you know we've, we've done this and this is where the character's going and then somebody will say well what about if we do it this way and you think, yeah shit why didn't i think of that that's really good that's really good let's go that and so the whole thing works really organically and builds itself up and um i think it it can be um a really really productive experience and you know we've done three books now and we've got uh the fourth one we've finished and we're going you know there's another two that we're we're going to write for sure um and then um, I have an idea for sort of a young macro series we could co-write as well. Okay. So that would be good. Yeah. Kind of, so, yeah. So how does the actual yeah. writing part of it work? So you do the brainstorming, the, the, the creative yeah. um, well, part of coming thing, up with story. Thing. I, mean, I, I do the first um, 20,000 words to get the thing kicked off. Um, because in this case, with the Karatakis, I wanted a very, very distinct voice for this uh, Roman historian. Um, so I was thinking kind of mentally sort of David Starkey uh with a toga you know um and i want you know, okay so you have to give it that kind of voice that way of looking at things and it's from his first person from his point of view um and then when we meet karatakis and we, and we get in to go back to history same thing you know you need to have a sense of how that that will look so once you sort of set a baseline style you know a house style for the book and then we can sort of start, start talking about the plot and then you know tj kicks in and we sort of um Re redo the first bit he adds a bit on and we we go from there backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards oh, that's um, really interesting because i wondered if like you know you came up with the storyline and just said you know here you go i've written a, a two sides of a4 now write a novel but it's not like that it's much more collaborative well you know it's far too much fun to want to let everybody else have all the fun yeah so um that's that's why um, and also, you know, I think, well, if, if, if we're splitting it 50-50, then I've got, you know, dibs on 50% of the content you know, for me to write <laughs> yeah. and you know, mess around with. So, um, uh, and, and it, it has to be that way, because I once got in, in, uh, involved with a couple of other writers, and we were going to call, set up this thing called Story Architects, where we pooled our ideas and research, and, and you know, we'd, uh, and then the whole thing fell apart because... Um, everybody say, well, if it's my idea, then I should get 80% of it and you should get 20%. You know, and yeah. you think, well, you know, we're now going to spend all our time talking about percentages. That's, that's like being in a band when the band's like, well, I wrote this bit of that song, so I need to have this credit and I want that yeah. percentage. And yeah, it's yeah. tough. So you have to, you know, just solve all your problems at the start and, and say 50%, you know, 50-50, yeah. and, you know, you get your name on the book. Then there's no arguments. No, you yeah. know, Tim's happy. I'm happy. You know, yeah. and... Cool. Uh, you know, the whole thing's fairly seamless. And I, I would, you know, if, if you haven't done it yet, it's certainly something I would uh, yeah. um, give a go because 
you know, it's so different from yeah, something itself. I've every, every now and again thought about. People people have said like because we're doing the podcast again, said, "Oh, have you you and Stephen thought about doing a, a book together?" And I, I I think, well, no, I haven't. We hadn't. But we both thought no, but who knows? Maybe one day. I'll give, him a two, I'll give you two sides of A four and um, <laughs> tell you to write it, and we'll split it fifty fifty. Sounds well, good I'll, to me. I'll do that, but I want sixty five. <laughs> you see this is how this yeah, is how it's it's in trouble. <laughs> oh no oh no what's going to happen um you mentioned so moving on quickly before we fall out um you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned earlier um uh, about writing a screenplay with your brother yeah. um alex scarrow yeah. um and i actually got a question already about that but that flows nicely into this so um very recently we mentioned earlier well, i mentioned jack reacher and lee child's done this thing where he's kind of retiring that's, and that's then right, handing yeah. it over to his to his brother who's also he's a writer to rename himself he has to rename himself to, to carry on the, the the you know the family the family business yeah. um and is that something that you would consider doing with your brother is it something that you can can you imagine that happening that you could sort of say well I'm, I, I don't want to write any more macro and cato um yeah. but how about you take it take on the you know well he did you know there was a, when, when we were still talking and that's a that's another issue he he wanted he was writing something called the time riders series for a young adult series for penguin um about this sort of agency that's set up to because uh, time time travel's being created so this agency's been set up to stop people manipulating time you know so um he said well can i use macro and cato in, in i'm writing one about rome and um i said well yeah you can but you've got a real challenge there because you know it's for kids and macro is not you yeah know, kid language friendly so um anyway uh so he did there's this thing called gates of rome and i think it's the fifth book in the series and i was really impressed to be honest um he had uh it was Caligula's wasn't assassinated because Caligula has, has discovered this time traveler in ancient Rome and used his technology to stay in power. So Cato is now head of the Praetorian Guard and constantly sort of tidying up behind Caligula. Macro's retired and gone into real estate. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was just really interesting, you know, because he sounded like Macro without swearing. And I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> so, you know, all credit to him for that. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, but the trouble is, you know, because of the, the family situation, I'm afraid that any further kind of collaboration with him is completely out of the question oh, no. until he uh, shows a little bit of contrition. How, how yeah, well, well. Uh, okay. Family, eh? Yeah, family, yeah. Yes, it's like, it's like bloody EastEnders, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'll move on from this. Eh, yeah, let's, let's <laughs> cast it. We'll, we'll draw a veil over that and move on. Do you have on. any? Any particularly interesting research stories, Simon? Well, yeah, um, well, not, not. I mean, only, only insofar as I, I like to go to where you know the books are set. Um, and when I was writing the the uh, Eagle in the Sand, I think is it? Yeah, that's the one. So that, I think it's the fifth book in the series. I think it might have been the fifth or sixth. I can't remember. But anyway, I was still teaching at the time, and. Um, and I thought, well, how am I going to get to this fork? Because I'd seen it on the website. I'd done the research on the internet. And there's this fork called Kaiser Bashir in the Jordanian desert. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I really want to go and see that because it's the best preserved Roman fork anywhere in the world. And, um, and I thought, well, how the hell am I going to get there? So I was thinking this through. Uh, and then one day as I was teaching, my phone went off. In, and, um, and, of course, it's that kind of, oh, no. You know, because you bollock the students, uh, you know, 
if their phone goes off and, and this happens to you total shodden for it a moment so anyway um i answered the phone and uh, this guy said uh, is that simon scarrow and i said yeah he said my name is timor dagestani i'm the jordanian ambassador and i'm a big fan of your books and so is a friend of mine the king of jordan and he you know his majesty wonders if you'd like to come out to jordan and see yeah, the ancient ruins there and i'm thinking you know this is <laughs> really good i am yeah. really impressed <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah really that's nice yeah so his majesty would like me to <laughs> yes yes mrs garrett you know and he could see he was feeling a bit why is he being a bit funny <laughs> you know and i'm thinking this student is, is bloody good you know whoever they've, yeah. they've got doing this is, is really terrific and then it cost a penny drop and it was real um so, in, you know, to cut the story short, yeah, we went out to um, Jordan and we were sort of shown around for a couple of weeks. And uh, he said, is there anything particularly you want to see? And I said, yeah, I want to see this fort in the, in the, in the desert. And uh, he said, well, I've never heard of it. And so he got his Minister of Tourism in. And he said, have you heard of this place? And he said, no, I've never heard of this. He said, well, there, <laughs> there is a guy um, um, who might, Samir Musha, who's um, a sort of film scout. Uh, working for the Jordanian Film Commission that they just set up. So they got this size Samir and he says, yeah, I know, I know. I scouted it a few years ago. It's in the middle of the desert. Um, nearest town's Alcatrana. Um, I can guide you there by phone if you like. So the king said, yeah, okay, no problem. We'll sort that out for you. So anyway, the next day or so, uh, he lent me one of his land cruisers and one of his bodyguards, a guy called Murad, who was so cool, I included him in the book because <laughs> um, he had a trunk full of guns and stuff. And he had this kind of weird laser eyes. So if anybody cut us up on the road, he'd sort of plop alongside them, glare at them, and then sort of swerve off and crash into the desert. I mean, he was cool. And my son loved him. You know, he thought he was absolutely rock. <laughs> so anyway, so we drive out into the desert. And this, um, so Murad's on the phone in one hand, driving in the other, and getting in the directions of um, Sam and Musha. So we find this Roman fort. And, um, and it was fantastic. The only damage that had been done to it was by an earthquake a couple of hundred years earlier, which had flattened some of the interior buildings. But the walls were there, the towers were there. Wow. Climb up to the towers, look over the desert, all there. Um, and, you know, I thought, nobody's been here. You know, there's no sign of rubbish or anything like that. And because it's sufficiently far away from the nearest um, settlement, nobody's used the stones to recycle yeah. for buildings. So it's yeah. all still there. So, you know, it's an absolutely fabulous experience visiting this place. Um, and then when I was, you know, the trouble is I was talking about it in interviews and stuff afterwards. And then a couple of years later, I got an email from a French guy saying, yeah, he said, I really like the books and stuff. And I, you know, this thought sounded great. So I thought I'd have a rave there. So he'd basically used this fort as a site for a rave. Oh, God. And they trashed the place. Oh, no. So, I mean. Well, they didn't, there's not, there's a limit to, you know, how much trash the Roman fort can do, but you can leave a lot of rubbish around, that's for mm. sure. So I thought, you know, you have to be a little bit careful in the future. If you come across something, you know, you, you don't tell everybody. Yeah, keep it a secret. Yeah, gosh, that's, yeah. still, nice to have, um, nice to have readers, not maybe well, not so much yeah. like the. You know, <laughs> you know the next, the, the, the sort of follow-up to this, don't you? What? Did you go oh. to one? No, no. I was talking to Timor in, in Cambridge the other day, and we were. He was talking about your book. And, Mine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm pretending that I didn't know this, but yeah, you actually. Yeah. 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 So um, you know, he said, yeah, he really likes it because you know he said um, the king's a real big, you know, really likes the way that you've kind of created this thing where people go into battle and they're not all kind of heroic and all the rest of it. They're just kind of pissing themselves and, and you know hoping that nothing happens to them, you know, whilst they're fighting. And he said, you know, that because that's how it is. Yeah. you know so um yeah so you know 
if you get that call during I was going to say if I get that call I'm going to start I'm going to have to think quickly about writing a book set in Jordan um yeah. so we'll make sure he hears about yeah. this so where's yeah where, where, where well I'm sure I can think of something to write in Jordan I mean you know you will now yeah. I will now yeah. <laughs> if I get the call I won't think it's a, a sort of a, a student taking the piss at least I don't have any students to yeah, yeah. So. well um so that's the research story sorry that's the research story it's a good <laughs> well, one good, a good yeah one. yep and, the rest of it's pretty boring, actually. It's just lots of boring, <laughs> talking to reenactors. And well, there's one guy actually. I, I tell you, reenactors are really useful. Um, and uh, there's also this this strand of um, historian researcher who actually recreates the stuff to test it and doesn't, uh, you know, tr trust the original sources. A guy called Peter Connolly. I don't know if you come across his book, Peter Connolly, Greece, no. Greece and Rome at War. It's a lovely, beautifully illustrated um, book because he started out as an illustrator, but. Um, you know, he completely killed something I've been told about uh, Roman javelins at school, and, and many times, you know, in, in 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 the text that these javelins were designed. They were so clever because they would throw them, and the oh, long the sort of tang would bend, so they couldn't throw yeah. it back. You know, yeah. and he said that's absolute rubbish. I spent two years um, building javelins and throwing them at sheets of plywood, and I couldn't get you know never. Could I get that to happen? So the long tang there is, you know, it's it's there to basically penetrate the shield far enough to skewer the guy behind it. That's yeah. all it's there for. Yeah. All the stuff about it bending and not being. Funnily, funnily enough, the Romans designed a weapon that was just designed to kill people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah. so we designed this sword so we can stick it in your guts. We designed this spear so it would just skewer you. Yeah. We designed this sword so craply that nobody would ever want to use it against you. You know, I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. So he'd sort of taken that as his first principle of all. Why would you defend, design a defective weapon? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense because because you have got those sort of weapons that have got barbs that are designed that you can't pull them out. You know, that's no, you obviously have to go. Well, there's a lovely yeah. there's a lovely book on Roman medicine that um, um, a friend gave me, and it was talking about arrow extraction. That's mm. um, with the feathers. Well, you have to you push it through. Yeah, yeah. In the same direction, you can't take it yeah. back. Exactly. So you have to create a decision, reach through, pull it through from the other side. And it was describing it in some detail. I thought, wow, oh, I think I put that in one of the books, actually, where Macro gets pegged by an arrow. Well, I've just put one similar to that in a book, uh, but they actually used feathers. So if you picture the arrowhead, yeah. kind of V-shape and the pointy part, they put feathers yeah. on the sharp part and pull it out using the feathers almost. So it doesn't Ooh. rip your skin out. It's hard to describe, but there's actually a video on YouTube, a guy yeah. that shoves it into a big block of meat, and then he gets the feathers and pushes them in, and then you can pull the whole arrow out. I would imagine it's still absolute agony. <laughs> but it, it yeah, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah but it doesn't rip all your flesh apart on the way out. No. So, well, I had a, I had a, um, you know, again, you, know, you can use these experiences if you're lucky, unlucky enough to have them. I had a really bad accident when I was skiing when I was a kid, and... Um, I had sort of tumbled over and got a, a ski cork between my legs, and it pulled, ripped open my thigh. Um, and it was really interesting because uh, I was the last person coming down the mountain, and, and the lifts had closed. So I had to sort of walk back up to the top of the cable car, wake the guy up to get to take me down. It was a small ski resort, and um, there was no doctor there. And so somebody had to call in a, a medic from the local Alpine regiment who was exercising the area. And he didn't have any kind of, um, you know, anything to knock me out or anything like that. So he had to basically, he went out and made some snowballs to pack around the wound to cool it down and numb it. And then he stitched up the muscle inside. So the oh. muscle had severed 
So he'd had to put it back and overlap it and then stitch it up and then pull the skin over and, and do this. And the whole thing took about an hour. Oof. And it was really, really interesting, you know, um, from the point of view of initially when the shock kicked in. Um, and, and I was looking down at my leg and I could see this flap muscle and this, you know, ripped open thigh. And, and I was thinking, but it doesn't hurt. Right. You know, yeah. this is really, really strange. Um, and it only really started hurting when he started, you know, sewing it all back up. And then you begin to realize just how painful something like that can be. Um, and that you have to keep still. And, yeah. um, you know, all the strategies, mental strategies you kind of develop for um, as you're doing it, you know, think about something else or focus on holding something really, really tightly, you know, just to get you through it. And it's funny so, how yeah. adrenaline works. I broke my leg when mm -hmm. I was younger and I actually snapped in half. Nice. I got hit by a car, but like you, there was no pain. I can distinctly remember pushing myself off the road with a leg flopping up and down, but there was no pain whatsoever. And I just pulled myself off and lay in the road until the ambulance came. And then it started to get sore later on, but it's yeah. funny, the adrenaline, Shocks the shock, are, yeah. It's a strange thing. It really is. You know, who would have thought that something like that would, you know. Not hurt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, not hurt in the instant, yeah, but um, later on. Eventually, it did eventually. Yeah. 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 But I guess I it, a, it's you a can... slightly, you know, it's a difficult problem insofar as this this thing cutting my things about an inch below my balls. Okay. Right. So um, every time, every evening, the, the there was a nurse who was going out, one of the PE teachers had taken on sick. So she would have to change the dressing. And I, you know, everybody would crowd around taking bets on whether I get an erection or not while she was changing the. <laughs> Oh, God, I tell you, that was humiliating. And that required huge self-control. Okay, right. Yeah. You have to think of broccoli or something instead. <laughs> I, like, I like the way you used the word huge there with such emphasis. <laughs> Just to... Well, actually, I had a tip, hot tip for that. Somebody said, think about Mrs. Thatcher in a cat suit. Worked every Oof. time. Yeah. <laughs> right, moving on. Yeah, please. Uh... <laughs> Well, we've we've been talking for um for about an hour, which is normally yeah. sort of what we aim to do. But I think you've got one more question. Yeah, how much of this are you going to have to edit out, Stephen? Well, probably <laughs> half of it. I don't know. Um, Stephen, you got a you got a question there. Is this a Christmas end. one? Yeah. Do you want to ask? Yes. Well, it's Christmas time, and when I used to work as a meter reader, I always took the Christmas period off as holidays. But one year, my manager refused, and I was so angry that I actually spent the entire time sitting in my car, and I managed to read two of your novels rather than going out to work. So that taught them a lesson, hopefully. I certainly enjoyed it anyway. So I have very fond memories of that year, but is your Christmas any different now in Mauritius? But, well, we know it's not, Matthew, so I don't know why you told me to ask that. Ah, because... he's not there. Well, he's not there, but uh, you could have reworded the question slightly. <laughs> well, I, I, I never realised until I got to the end what I'd said. Well, I suppose New Year will be different, won't it? Well, this is it. So I, was, I thought you were going to lead in with the, so what are you going to do You know, when you go back to Mauritius now that it's Christmas? And yeah. No, well, I, you know, I, I don't know what the deal is in Mauritius, actually. I mean, they have so many religious festivals there. Because the, this is one of the things I really like about it. People are amazing. So there's 50% Hindu, there's 30% Muslim and 20% Christian. And, you know, they've kind of cottoned on to the fact that rather than have any kind of religious strife, we get to enjoy each other's holidays. Right. All the holidays, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they have loads and loads of public holidays, you know, and so they're very, very happy to celebrate each other's, you know, holidays. Well, we've been talking for 
over an hour now. Hopefully, we don't have to edit too much out. Although, obviously, a few bits of um, of Simon's rather fruitier language we'll have to edit out or or leave in. You know, maybe beep beep yeah. beep beep out. Yeah, we'll beep it out. Yeah. We we ask each of our guests um, yeah. a series of the same questions at the end, um, and the first of those questions are: What have you been reading recently, and what have you been watching? recently ah okay uh reading um i'm reading victor klemperer's diaries so he was a guy, jewish guy um who became who, who sort of became a protestant when he married his wife in germany um and uh it's from 1933 through to 45 he survived you know by you know hooker by crook and and, and uh, so it's very much a kind of he doesn't concentrate on the big things it's all about the day-to-day life of, of living as someone who's you know gradually being ground down by all these mm. this whole process so it's really really interesting and it just reminds you about the the kind of quotidian awfulness of living in a regime like that where it's so petty-minded it's so kind of the small things the small indignities that grind you down even before the holocaust and, and, and the, that sort of stuff kicks off so and it's you know, one of a series of books I've been reading, the one before that was uh, um, Culture in, in Nazi Germany. It's a big, 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 thick book. And basically it's about how there was no culture in Nazi Germany and how they basically redu- you know, ruined the film industry, ruined the art, ruined sculpture, mm. ruined literature, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, and you, and you kind of read this and then you look at um, what's going on in our own country and the kind of cultural philistines who are running the show. And so, yeah, those sorts of books I'm afraid I'm reading at the moment. But uh, what have I seen recently? Well, I tell you, I, I, um, one of the great delights of flying on Emirates is they have a channel devoted to classic cinema. All right. So um, on the way back, I watched two films which I'd seen long, long ago, and, and I'd forgotten how brilliant they were. One was um, Double Indemnity, which was a, based on a Stephen Kane novel. So it's a, sort of of that hard-boiled, you know, 1930s uh, uh, type of thing. Really, really, you know, crackling dialogue and uh, smart story and things like that and the other one was something i'd only seen part of which was the bicycle feeds um okay it's this italian movie which i've heard you know everybody puts it you know when you speak you know, hear a lot of directors talking about oh yeah one of my top 10 movies and you're thinking a story about you know set in rome where somebody steals someone's bike you know, <laughs> and they try and get it back you know how exciting <laughs> can that be and then you watch this film and you think yeah, no, I get it. I get it now. You know, it is absolutely astonishing. Um, and I think it's, it's that, you know, we tend to get sort of caught up in this, you know, constant cutting edge of modernity and so on. And you forget that there are, you know, there was a time when people actually wrote literate film scripts and, um, you know, concentrated on, you know, just telling a very simple story as beautifully as possible. You know, um, now it's all kind of CGI. Um, and it and it's 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 that that thing again about living out of a suitcase, you know. You realise that what the essentials are that make life worthwhile, you know, and rewarding. And I think it's it's seeing a film like The Bicycle Thieves just kind of puts that into that context, hmm. while sitting in a horribly uncomfortable chair being fed plastic <laughs> food, yeah, you know, seven and a half hours. But, uh, yeah. So last there. last one then. What have you been listening to, and do you listen to music uh, when you write? Well, I always have a soundtrack on when I'm writing, um, and it can't have any. It has to be a soundtrack. It can't be any lyrics because that's distracting. Yeah, everybody's basically saying much the same yeah. thing when we ask them. Yeah, so it tends to be Lord of the Rings because the how Howard Shaw Howard Shaw, yeah, 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 yeah. brilliant music. 
Um, so it tends to be that, or it's Gladiator, or it's Master and Commander, which they're all cracking soundtracks. I don't think Master and Commander is one that's on my list, but I definitely oh, think Gladiator should, and the should. other one. So yeah, yeah I will. Um, and then when I'm, you know, in down mode, um, I'm working my way through the Green Day catalog at the moment, um, right. which is <laughs> they're just amazing, you know, frankly. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you, if you can get a DVD of the videos as well. So to what? So when I'm doing Christmas wrapping or something, mm. you know, I can sit there and watch endless Green Day videos. <laughs> and some of them are really, really good. So, Great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of our of our chat. So thank you ever so much for your time, Simon, thank you. coming on. Well, thank you, Stephen. Matthew, it's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been yeah, brilliant. And um, books, guys. sorry, I missed that. Good luck with the books. Oh, <laughs> and you. Thank you. Thank you. I would say of the. All the authors, I think, you and Bernard Cornwell are probably our two heroes, really. Mine, anyway. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Biggest inspiration. So, so, we've, so. so we've peaked early because we've had you both on in the yeah, first Yeah, exactly. I don't know so. where we go next. Yeah, well, yeah. But Bernard is, uh, I mean, he's he's obviously a great interview subject. I mean, he's he's, he's absolutely cracker. Yeah, and he's a real fun. good raconteur. Yeah. So, well, I think yeah. I think next is um, we'll have to get Lee Child and Stephen King on next year. To see, <laughs> yeah, that would be yeah. good. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah. Well, who else is, well, of course, you, you, Harry Sidebottom's always good value for money. Yeah, oh, so yeah. I'm sure we'll, yeah. we'll have him on eventually. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's that's... lots of there's lots of historical fiction authors um, that um, we've got lined up. So for anyone listening to this, there's lots more writers that you know will be coming on in the new year. I'm sure and. Um, musicians and all sorts we've got lined up as well so it'll be fun wow okay well I'll, I'll i'll definitely tune in then now i know about it in the meantime have a great christmas you too and um happy new year thank you very much simon that's it for today's episode we hope you've enjoyed it please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes you can contact us on our facebook page which is facebook.com slash rock paper swords podcast or on Twitter, um, our handle there is at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books at matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. We're also both on Twitter and Facebook and love to hear from readers and listeners, so drop by and say hi. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time, a rock, paper, swords, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. Mackay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind, stay safe, and happy reading. Okay.